You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You turn now in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. And when you found your place, let's pray together before we begin. Our gracious and loving Father, it is by your grace and by your goodness that you have given to us your word. We pray now that you would equip us and edify us and encouragement encourage us through the text of Scripture. May you focus our hearts and minds upon your word that we may learn from you this morning and that we may understand your intended meaning in this passage so that we may hear the voice of our great God in the passage of Holy Scripture. Grant that this may be the case this morning as we gather together here to, to hear your word proclaimed and to study it together. Bless this time to the good of your church and your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, probably not very many people here, if uh, if any, have heard the name Daniel Tammet. And though you may not know his name, he is a rather significant and gifted individual because he has a form of Asperger's syndrome, which has resulted not in a mental disability, but rather in a mental ability. It makes him something of an autistic savant so that he is gifted in memorizing numbers and doing mathematical equations and learning languages in fact, Daniel Tammet learned the Icelandic language in only a week's time. And on March 14, 2004, Daniel set the European record for reciting the numbers of pi uh, and broke that record, broke the European record. And March 14th, of course, is a significant day because it's the third month and the 14th, and you know pi is 3.14, etc. And I say etc. because I don't know any of the other numbers that come after the four, but I'm told that it goes on for infinity. So Daniel spent five hours and nine minutes reciting 22,514 digits of pi perfectly without error. So he holds the record. So he is quite an intellectual, intellectually gifted individual. And in his book, Born on a Blue Day, Inside the Extraordinary Mind of an Autistic Savant, Daniel Tammet writes this. Now listen to this carefully. He says this, I still remember vividly the experience I had as a teenager lying on the floor of my room staring up at the ceiling. I was trying to picture the universe in my head to have a concrete understanding of what everything was. And in my mind, I traveled to the edges of existence and looked over them, wondering what I would find. In that instant, I felt really unwell, and I could feel my heart beating hard inside of me. Because for the first time, I had realized that thought and logic had limits and could only take a person so far. This realization frightened me, and it took me a long time to come to terms with it. End quote. See, Daniel Tammet, as intellectually gifted as he, as he is, realized that human thought and human logic and human reason can only take someone so far. There are limits to that. There are limits to it in terms of understanding the universe and what everything is and the significance of everything. And if it, if it stunned and shocked and terrified Daniel Tammet to realize the limits of human logic and human thinking, imagine the horror of Song of, Sol- of Solomon, not Song of Solomon, imagine the horror of Solomon one of the most gifted men, or the most gifted man, wisdom, wisdom wisely speaking, other than Jesus Christ, of course, to come to the understanding that there are limits to wisdom. To, to search and, and explore and think out and think through 
all of the aspects of human life, but then to realize that there is a limit to the wisdom that he had been given. And that is what, in fact, what our text teaches us in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. And we're looking today at these last few verses of uh, chapter 1. We're not going to get through all of them, but we are going to get through a portion of them. Solomon, so far in Ecclesiastes, has been answering the question that he poses at the beginning of chapter 1 in verse 3. What advantage or what profit is there in, to all of the work which a man does under the sun? And now everything that he is exploring and talking about and all of the, the experiments that he is doing are all intended in one way or another to try and get at answering that question. What is the advantage to my work? And so Solomon, the scientist, observed nature, and he saw in nature all of these repeating cycles that go on endlessly. He observed the course of the sun and the wind and the rain and the waters and all of that, and he came to the conclusion that if you just look at nature, there is no advantage to all the work that we do under the sun. So then Solomon, the anthropologist, looked at man, and he saw in man the same insatiability and dissatisfaction that nature seems to possess as well. And the eye is not filled with seeing, and the ear is not filled with hearing. There is this insatiability in man. And Solomon concluded that given that that is true about humanity, there is no advantage to all of our work under the sun. And then Solomon, the historian, examined history. And he saw in history the same repeated cycle. A generation comes and a generation goes. And yet, in spite of all of our discoveries and our efforts and our labors, there's really nothing new and nothing remembered under the sun. So now, having heard from Solomon the scientist, Solomon the anthropologist, and Solomon the historian, now we're going to hear from Solomon the philosopher, the lover and possessor of wisdom. And he is going to examine life as it is under the sun from the vantage point of human wisdom. Since observing nature and humanity and history offers me no advantage to all of the work that I do under the sun, what if I examine all of the work that is done under the sun from the vantage point of human wisdom and reason, uh, human rationality, human thinking, human wisdom? If I examine everything using human logic and human reason, reason, can that maybe yield me some results that would, in the end, allow me to say that life is not all meaningless, everything that is not all vanity and chasing after the wind? Maybe there is some sliver of human existence, some sliver of human thinking that having been examined, we can then say, here I have found meaning, here I have found purpose. Is there such a thing? Is there such a part of human existence and human effort that if we just apply the best that man has in thinking through and reasoning through these things, that we can come up with a meaning and a purpose, again, under the sun and entirely apart from divine revelation? That is the question of verses 12 through 18. So that's the passage that we're going to be looking at. And let me give you just a few uh, observations, generally speaking, starting at verse 12. And I need to kind of back up and give a a 30,000-foot view of the passage ahead of us just so you have an understanding of what's going to take place. Because we are, uh, well, I'm just going to give you four observations from this passage, generally speaking. The first one is this. We are beginning at chapter 1, verse 12, we are beginning a new textual section, a new textual section that actually takes us all the way through the end of chapter 2. And you could probably just look in your translation and see that verses 1 to 11 is structured as poetry. Verses 12 and following is structured in paragraph form. Can you see the difference in that? Okay, so beginning at verse 12, we are beginning a new textual section. And there's something in verse 12 that we have not seen so far in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is the first person personal pronoun, I. Beginning in verse 12 and going all the way through the end of chapter 2, this becomes a very personal section where we hear Solomon say, I did this and I thought that and I reasoned this and I examined this and I studied this and I set my mind to do this and here is what I found in all of my thinking which I have done with my brain under the sun. 
So this is a very personal, very biographical section. So now we're getting Solomon's take on these things from his own first-person vantage point. So not only is it a new textual section, but second, we're going to come across some familiar phrases as we have already in Ecclesiastes. Phrases like vanity, chasing after the wind, under the sun, and under heaven. Those phrases are going to continue through this new section. But there is something different, that there's something emphasized here. Uh, first is the word toil. It should be obvious to us that from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2, Solomon is still trying to answer that question, what is the advantage or profit to a man in all of his labor under the sun? He's still trying to answer that question because beginning at verse 12 and going through the end of chapter 2, he will use the Hebrew word for toil 15 times. He's talking about work and labor. And he is still plumbing this question, is there an advantage to all of my labor and all of my toil under the sun? Third, there is a new emphasis in this section, and it is the, the, the word wisdom and the concept of wisdom. This, is, this section, beginning of verse 12, uh, brings us face to face with words like wise, wisdom, know, and knowledge. And this is the first time in Ecclesiastes we have read anything like that. The word wisdom or wise occurs in the book of Ecclesiastes 53 times. Uh, 17 times between verse 12 and the end of chapter 2. And then when you add the occurrence of the words know and knowledge to that in that same passage, that brings the number up to 23 times. And this is just a little interesting trivia in case you ever run across this in a Bible trivia game. That makes this passage of Scripture the highest concentration of wisdom words, know, knowledge, wise, and wisdom of any passage in Scripture. So there can be no doubt as to what Solomon is aiming at here, and he is examining wisdom. And fourth, there is a noticeable structure to verses 12 through 18, and it is a structure that is repeated. Verse 12 through 15 is one sort of unit, and verses 16 to 18 is a second unit, and both of these two units are structured the same way. They re- Solomon is not repeating himself exactly, but as with Hebrew poetry where you have one statement and then another one that kind of backs it up or explains that second, that first statement, so here we have one sort of unit in verses 12 through 15, and then verses 16 to 18, Solomon is stating a similar thing from a sec, from the similar perspective, and the structure of these passages is the same. So let me, let me show you the structure, and we will read through the passage, and as we do, we're gonna be flipping back from the first little bit to the second little bit, back and forth, so you can see the parallel ideas. Okay, so the first, the first little unit is verses 12 through 15. And here's, here's the flow of thought. Solomon begins with a biographical statement. Solomon then describes his unit or area of study, the thing he is examining. Then he tells us the results of his study. And then he sort of puts the results of his study in a proverb. So a biographical statement, here's what I studied, here are the results, here's a little proverb. So he does that in verses 12 to 15, and then he repeats that same process again in verses 16 through 18. And unfortunately, there are four, there are four parts to this structure but there are not four verses in each one. So the, the verse structure doesn't bear this out, but the thoughts definitely do. So begin in verse 12 with me. Here's the biographical statement. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 16. Biographical statement. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Then Solomon describes the the area of his study, what it was that he was going to examine. Look at verse 13. And I set my mind, notice that phrase, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Now look over at verse 17. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. That's the area of structure. That's the area of his study. Now look at the results of his study. 
back in verse, uh, middle of verse 13. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. That's the results of the study. Now look at that over in the second section in verse 17. And I realize that this also is striving after wind. That's the results of it. Now look at the proverb that kind of captures the idea behind his results. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And then there's a proverb in verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So you have a biographical statement. Then you have, here's what I studied. Here's what the conclusion I came to. Here's sort of the proverb that captures that conclusion. Do you get that structure? Okay, in the first little mini section there, verses 12 to 15, Solomon is examining all of the works that were done under the sun. That's his area of study. In the second section, Solomon is examining wisdom itself. Wisdom, madness, and folly. So the first area of his investigation is all the works that are done under the sun, verses 12 to 15, and that's the section that we're going to be looking at today. So in order to to make this simple, we're just going to follow Solomon's structure that he has already laid out. We're just going to go over the verses as they as they are and deal with each of these in the order that Solomon does it. So let's begin first with his biographical statement in verse 15. Sorry, not verse 15, verse 12. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, this is Now, this is Solomon here describing himself as the preacher, as he does back in verse 1. And this little biographical detail that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem is what helps us narrow it down that this is Solomon that is writing this. Because back in verse 1, we found out that the person who is the author of this book, that this book is the words of a son of David. Now, there are a lot of sons of David who could say that they were king in Jerusalem, right? Solomon, who was followed by, is it Rehoboam or Jeroboam? The kingdom was split, but one of those two, I think it's Rehoboam, who took over the kingdom in the south. And then, of course, Rehoboam's son and all that, all those lineage of descendants from David. Any one of them could be called, uh, strictly speaking, a son or a descendant of David. But there was only one son of David who was king over all of Israel in Jerusalem. Because after Solomon died, the kingdom was split into the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And in the south, in the land of Judah, over those two tribes, there was kings who ruled from Jerusalem. There was only one son of David who ruled the entire nation known as Israel from Jerusalem, and that was Solomon. And he calls himself the preacher, which is the Hebrew word kohelet, and it is in Greek Ecclesiastes from which we get the name of this book. And it simply refers to one who speaks before an assembly, one who gathers together or assembles people, or one who addresses an assembly. And so these are the words of the one who calls himself the preacher or the one who gathers together an assembly and he's sharing with us now who are assembled together. He is sharing with us the wisdom that he learned or what he has discovered from his examination of all things under the sun. So that's his biographical statement. Now, you may be asking, which I did, what does his biographical statement, the fact that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem, what does that have to do with his area of study? And I'm going to make a connection here in just a second, but let's look first of all at his area of study in verse 13. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I set my mind... This is, his, this is his area of study to examine all that is done, all the works that have been done under the sun. Now notice that Solomon says, I set or fixed my mind. And that word translated mind is sometimes translated in Scripture heart. 
It is the Hebrew word that just refers to the inner man, the inner being, the inner person. It can sometimes be translated mind if it's describing the intellect. It can sometimes be translated heart if it is describing the emotions. Well, at least that's how we describe it. But in Hebrew, they didn't distinguish between heart and mind. They just had, they just talked about the inner person, the inner man. And Solomon set his mind to seek and ex- explore all that is done under heaven. So this was no casual task for Solomon. This is not just something that he did as he was sitting around the fire late at night in the castle and he had some time on his hands and so he thought, well, I've got 15 minutes for my next appointment. I'll give some thought to the meaning of life. No, this is something that Solomon poured himself into. This became, at one point in his life, his life pursuit. To set and fix all of his attention, all of his disciplined effort, all of his mental faculties on discovering the answer to this question, is there any purpose, any meaning to all of the work that is done under the sun? This became his life's goal at some point. And you can see the intensity of his search from the words that he used. To seek and to explore. Or as he says in verse, is that the word that's used? To seek and to explore. Yeah, by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. Uh, he is seeking and exploring. And some people try and distinguish between those two words, but there's probably no reason to do so because they're virtual cinnamon, not cinnamon, synonyms in the Hebrew language. And so to try and distinguish between the two of them is probably quite fruitless. But it just describes somebody who passionately pursued something um, with all of his being. The word seek is sometimes used to describe in a religious or devotional sense seeking after God. Now, Solomon had sought after God to figure out the answers to life. The book of Ecclesiastes would be much different, wouldn't it? But Solomon is not seeking after God. He's seeking after answers. And so he is setting his mind to seek or to passionately pursue the answers. Now listen, there's a little bit of wisdom here. If you seek answers apart from God, you don't get answers or God. But if you seek God, you get God and the answers. Solomon was seeking, not God, in any kind of a religious or devoted or passionate sense. Solomon is seeking using his own mental capacities after the answers to life, and he is seeking after those answers and diligently exploring them. He set his mind to do this. And I want you to know how broad, notice how broadly this search is. All that is done under the sun. Now, what does all encompass? You can say Solomon explored philosophy. He probably explored science, uh, botany, uh, all of the stuff that goes on in nature. He may have uh, done an anthropological search and looked at man, maybe archaeology and history and law and politics and cultures and customs and, and all of the works and labors and hobbies and the different different uh, uh, styles of occupation, different things that we do for occupation. All that is done under the sun. This, I think, is the biographical connection. This is why Solomon tells us at the beginning, I was king over all of Israel in Jerusalem. What does the fact that he is king have to do with the scope of his search? If you were going to bite off that monumental task of examining everything that is done under the sun, how able would you be to accomplish that? You would need both the intellectual power to do that as well as access to everything that is done under the sun, wouldn't you? Now, if I wanted to find out the meaning of life, and I thought that Barack Obama understood what the meaning of life was, and I thought maybe I'll just arrange an interview with him, how successful would I be in interviewing the President of the United States to seek maybe to see if he might understand what the meaning and purpose of life is? How successful would I be? Chances are pretty good. I would never be able to arrange an interview with the President of the United States. But if the President of the United States thought that I had the answer to the meaning of life, would the President of the United States be able to get in contact with me? Would he be able to arrange an interview with me? See, Solomon, from his vantage point, from his position as king, there is no area of life or the world that would be outside of his grasp. 
He could talk with anybody he desired to talk to. He could go anywhere in his kingdom he wanted to go. He could travel anywhere in the then known world that he wanted to travel. He could go down to the seaport and talk to sailors from other nations who brought in the wares. He could arrange conversations with merchants or educators or philosophers or theologians or mechanics or builders or architects or anybody he wanted to talk to. He could go anywhere in his kingdom. He could examine every hobby. He could talk to somebody from every occupation. There is no realm of human activity that would be outside his grasp. And you and I should understand this so that we don't start to think, well, maybe there was some area of human achievement or some area of human activity that was outside of Solomon's grasp. Some area out there that he has yet to discover or that we have yet to discover. This is Solomon's way of saying there is nothing under the sun he could not touch. There is nowhere under the sun he could not go if he wanted to go. And he examined how much of it? All of it. All of the labor that was done under the sun. That's why this is not a, this is not a casual investigation or a casual study. This is something that Solomon at one point set his entire mind and his entire heart on. He was vexed by this question, what is the profit to all of my labor and activity under the sun? And so he set his mind to discover this by examining all that is done under the sun. Every area, every realm. And this is a study that he was guided by in his wisdom. Look at the end of verse, or part of verse 13. He set his mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. Now what was going to be Solomon's guide in this pursuit? It would be wisdom. Now, I don't think that this is describing divine wisdom, though Solomon was a man who had been given that at some point, a great deal of divine wisdom. Scripture says he was wiser than any man who had lived before him, and he was wiser than any man who came after him, save except, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the embodiment of human of, of divine wisdom. Uh, so he was the wisest man who had ever lived. So he had that mental capacity. But I don't believe that Solomon is here describing divine wisdom. I think he is describing here human wisdom. And let me tell you why. There are all kinds of different kinds of wisdom, aren't there? There's demonic wisdom, there's worldly wisdom, there's human wisdom, there's divine wisdom, there's all kinds of, of quote-unquote wisdoms. Uh, Solomon is not finding the limits or not finding the inadequacies in divine wisdom in his search. He is examining all of life from the human vantage point. In other words, he is saying, I examined everything using the best that men can offer, the best of my human reasoning, my human abilities, my human rationality, my human wisdom. Again, he is not examining life under the sun from the perspective of above the sun. He is examining life under the sun from the vantage point of under the sun. It is still human reasoning and human wisdom and human rationality that Solomon is applying to the great questions of life. So I set my mind to seek and explore using human wisdom and human reason all that is done under the sun. So wisdom is going to be his guide, but it is not divine wisdom. It is human wisdom. Now, you and I have certain a certain amount of human wisdom available to us. There are all types of things that we can learn from the natural world. There's human wisdom where we look at the natural world, how life works, how things unfold, how things happen, and we come up with certain ways of, of sort of figuring out how to live life in this world from the vantage point of human wisdom. And a lot of wise, not wise in the divine sense, but... It, a lot of wise in the human sense and a lot of smart intellectual people can come up with certain truisms about life that we all acknowledge help us to live life under the sun. And we have ways of capturing these even in some of our modern day Proverbs. Like we say, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Or a stitch in time saves nine. Or a penny saved is a penny earned. Right? Don't tug on Superman's cape. Don't spit into the wind. Don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger and don't mess around with Jim. Even Jim Croce could understand a certain amount of, of human wisdom from a human perspective. So we have ways of dealing with life in this world and ways of, of figuring out how to live even from a human vantage point. 
It is human rationality and human reason that Solomon is applying to this question. But here's the question. How far can human wisdom take us? Can I really figure out what the meaning and purpose of life is just using human reason and human reason alone? Without any divine revelation, without any divine wisdom, is my human mind able to answer the greatest questions in life? Can human wisdom, for instance, lead me to the glory of God in the face of Christ? Human wisdom is incapable of that. Can human wisdom lead me to life everlasting and escaping the wrath of God as a punishment for my sin? Can human wisdom do that? You might say, well, human wisdom is obviously inadequate for all of those greater tasks, but human wisdom uh, could answer at least some of the basic points of life. Okay, well, let's apply human wisdom to even the smallest and the simplest the most basic, the most foundational issue, and that would be this. Can human wisdom tell me why anything is meaningful? Why there is meaning in anything? Apart from divine revelation, I would postulate this. When you take God out of the picture, nothing means anything. We are all just molecules in motion. There is no morality. There is no purpose. There is no direction. There is no meaning. There is no intention. You are just a collection of gooey molecules that will someday return to the planet Earth, to dust. That's all you are without God. The atheist does not want to admit that. Some of them are honest enough to do so. But most atheists do not want to admit that. And most atheists do not want to live like that. Because they understand the implications of that is complete and utter nihilism. If nothing is meaningful, then there's no point to anything. So why continue moving on? Stephen Hawking, the famed astrophysicist, once said this, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star, but we can understand the universe. <laughs> monkeys understand the universe. We're just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet around an average star, but we can understand the universe. Do you understand that every phrase of that statement by Stephen Hawking is the polar opposite of what Scripture says? We're not just an advanced breed of monkeys. We are created in the image of a transcendent and holy and personal God who created us in his image, and that gives us infinite value and worth. We're not just another advanced form of monkeys. We are actually, uh, uh, we are almost infinitely separated from the animals in that sense, that we are created in the image of God and animals are not. And this is just not a minor planet around an average star. This is a planet that created, but with this star, for this star, and this planet is created for us, and we are the kings of creation. That's what Scripture teaches and in spite of the fact that we are created in the image of God, we can't understand the universe. Hawking says we're just monkeys on an average planet that can understand the universe. And the Bible says we are not monkeys, it's not an average planet, and we can't understand the universe, apart from divine revelation. But listen to the hubris and arrogance of that statement, that human reason can come to answer the most significant and profound questions of life. Can it really? Well, that's what Solomon set out to explore. Now, it doesn't tell us all that he did and everywhere he traveled and everybody he talked to, but he does give to us the results of his study, and this is in verse 14. Actually, it's in the middle of verse 13. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with, a grievous task. This is the first time that Solomon mentions God in Ecclesiastes, and notice that it is not a positive mention. Notice what he says. It is a grievous task that God has afflicted men with. What's the grievous task? Trying to examine life under the sun apart from divine revelation. It lost in this mystery of meaningfulness 
We're trying to examine all things done under the sun. This is a grievous task. It's vexing. It's a, it's a weighty burden that God has afflicted men with. This is not the last time that Solomon's going to mention God, but it is worth noting that the very first time that he mentions God, he mentions God in the sense of one who has afflicted us with this burden of trying to find out what life is apart from divine revelation, that we are afflicted with this, living in this world of utter meaninglessness. And it is a grievous task because it is destined to failure. Look what he says in verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. And the word vanity there is the same word that is, occurs earlier in chapter 1. He says vanity of vanities, all is vanities. It just means empty and meaningless, purposeless. It's useless. has no significance whatsoever. So here's what I have discovered. Having examined all the work that is done under the sun, from my position as king in Jerusalem, I have found that all of it is utterly meaningless and useless and empty. All of it is. And it is a grievous task because trying to understand the significance of life from the vantage point of human wisdom and human wisdom alone is destined to failure because human wisdom is not up to that task. Human wisdom cannot discern those things. Human wisdom cannot reason in that direction. Human wisdom is broken. And so it is a grievous task because it cannot be done. And this is what afflicted Solomon. Now notice now the, the proverb that he gives in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, what in the world does that mean? And what does it have to do with everything we've been talking about, right? What is crooked cannot be straightened. And what is lacking cannot be counted. The term crooked and the word lacking are intended to describe life in this world and what Solomon observed under the sun. Everything in this world is crooked. And there are elements of this world that are lacking and they cannot be counted. So let's break the proverb in half. I'll explain each half of it, and you'll see how this applies to everything that he has said before. What is crooked cannot be straightened. The word crooked there can be used to describe something that is morally perverse or morally crooked. It can be used to describe that. But that doesn't seem to be the sense that Solomon is using it here. That is not to say that life in this world is not morally perverse in many ways, or that life under the sun is not filled with its, its measure of moral perversity. But it is to say that that's not what Solomon is describing here. Solomon is not making a moral assessment of life under the sun. He's making a philosophical assessment of life under the sun. Solomon is describing life as it is in this world. It is crooked. It is bent. This world is bent. And everything in this world is bent. And what is bent cannot be straightened. In other words, human reason and human rationality can tell me that everything in the world is broken, but it cannot fix what is broken. Cannot fix it. I can observe that everything is bent, but I cannot fix what is bent with human rationality. So Solomon can explore all of the works that are done under the sun, and he can, he can come to the conclusion that everything in this world is broken and bent. Nothing is as it should be. But human rationality, human reason, human logic and intellect and understanding is insufficient to fix any of those broken things. So that what is bent cannot be straightened. Further, what is lacking cannot be counted. What does he mean by that? What is lacking cannot be counted. If, if you have, if you have to count up uh, something and it is not lacking, it is lacking a certain number of things, but you don't know what the total should be, you can't count what is lacking. Let me give you a, an illustration of that. Let's say that I were to pour out for you 25 puzzle pieces on a table between you and I. And these 25 puzzle pieces, some of them are edge pieces, some of them are middle pieces, a couple of them, only two or four of them will fit together in any kind of coherent fashion. Some of them are red, some of them are blue, some of them are yellow. And then I say to you, how many are missing? Count them up and tell me what is lacking. Are you able to do that? 
not unless you know a couple of things, right? You have to know how many pieces are in the puzzle to begin with. And if I ask you what the, the big picture of it is, human reason cannot come up with that. So what is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, another way of saying this is, we don't even know what we don't know. Life is full of gaps in our knowledge and our understanding and, and, and in our wisdom. Life is full of these gaps. And we don't even know where the gaps are at. And further, we don't even know how big these gaps are. And does it not seem that the more we understand and the more we discover, the more we realize that we don't know? We think that we have, we think that we have discovered the answer to life or the riddle to life because we have discovered the protein. And suddenly we realize that uh, discovering protein molecules in, in, an, in an, a, a single-celled organism opens up a whole bunch of questions and things that we don't understand. Like, how did the protein get there? How did the protein organize itself? How do those protein uh, molecules go back and forth and run around inside of a cell? The more we discover, the more we realize that we don't know. And the more we learn, the more we realize there are gaps in our understanding. So it is with life. There are certain things in this world that are bent, they cannot be straightened out. There are certain things in this world that are lacking, and we can't even count what's lacking. So what is Solomon's assessment of life under the sun? Viewed from the vantage point of human wisdom, this world is broken. It is bent. It is crooked. And I can discover that by human reasoning. I can say to myself, this is not as it should be. But human intellect and human wisdom cannot offer me any solutions. Furthermore, it cannot even answer the basic problem of life, which is, is there any profit to life under the sun? That's the question he's trying to answer. Is there a profit to my work? And Solomon comes back with, everything is bent, and it cannot be straightened. And what is lacking cannot be counted. There are applications, uh, there, are, there are examples of this in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon will give us later on. In fact, the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes is filled with one example of bentness or crookedness after another. For instance, he gives the example of a man who amasses a fortune through diligence and hard work and applying wisdom to his task and, and enjoying his labor, and he amasses this fortune, and then he dies and he hands it off to a foolish son who squanders and spends it all. That's bent, isn't it? How about the man who amasses a fortune only to have that, that wealth seized by government bureaucrats or to have that wealth make itself wings and fly away like a bird? That is a bent situation. Or to have one man who, who lives his life in moral uprightness and uses wisdom to live his life, but because of some tragedy, it is cut short, and he dies in the prime of his life before the, really the fullness of his life can be expressed and enjoyed. And yet on the other side of that equation is a man who is wicked and perverse and, and a, a, a profane individual whose miserable existence just seems to go on forever, and they live into old age. That's bent, isn't it? There are examples of bentness in our own world and in our own lives that we recognize. A Christian parent, uh, parents raise their children in a God-fearing household and do everything right, it seems, and then that child walks away from the Lord. That's a bent situation, isn't it? It's a broken world. How about a, a Christian individual who wants to honor God with their business, but then they find out that because they are a, a photographer or a cake decorator or a flower arranger, that rather and, and they object to using their talents and their gifts, to promote a form of immorality, they find that the government comes in, takes everything that they have worked hard to build, finds them out of existence, punishes them, takes everything that they have. That's bent. That's crooked. And then on the other side of that equation is people high in political office who commit crimes that if it were done by anybody in this room would land you in prison for decades. You would never see the light of day. But this person's running for president of the United States. That's crooked. 
That's bent. We can observe these things, but what can we do to fix them? Tell me who applies human wisdom and reason to all of these bent things and gets them solved. You realize there are 200 million to 300 million people in this world religiously motivated who would like to see everybody in this room dead for no other reason than the fact that you gathered here as part of a Christian church to worship and serve Jesus Christ this morning. You human reason going to figure that one out? You got some sort of human wisdom that's going to solve that problem? You think the U.S. military is going to solve that problem? Yet we're told all the time that we can solve that problem. In fact, this is the promise Every election cycle, we are told, yes, we can. We can figure it out, right? We can cure AIDS. We can cure cancer. We can cure death. We can cure poverty. We can cure hunger. We can solve all these problems. We, by a government policy or some law that we pass, we can affect the climate 100 years from now because we have some idea or something that we're going to do. We're going to make the, the oceans stop their rising, and we're going to magically make ice appear on the polars, on the poles of the earth. We're going to solve poverty. We just need a new deal or a new new deal or a new war on terror, a war on poverty, a war on drugs, a war on whatever. We're just going to declare war, but we can solve it. We can solve all of our ills. We can solve all of these things that are wrong. We can. Yes, we can. We're told that every four years, right? You know what the Bible says? You can't. You're not going to solve poverty. You're not going to solve anything with the environment. You're not going to solve anything. Human wisdom is inadequate to the task. There are certain things about this world that are bent and listen, they cannot be straightened. That is the way that it is, and there is no changing that. It can frustrate us, because from the vantage point of human wisdom, we see what is bent. We are frustrated by what is bent. There is something in us that cries out to see it fixed and to see it straightened. But human wisdom is inadequate to the task of straightening it up. Now, Solomon is not applying divine wisdom to this solution. And, and I want to contrast for just a moment human wisdom and divine wisdom. Divine wisdom, when applied to the things that are bent, of course, we see what is bent in the realm. We see what is lacking in this world. Divine wisdom does not straighten those things out. Divine wisdom helps us live in a godly fashion in a bent world. If you had all of, if you had the book of Proverbs memorized and you perfectly applied every bit of divine wisdom that is given to you, it would not straighten out life. It would help you live in an unjust world. It would help you understand why things are bent. It would help you understand how to live among the things that are bent, but it's not going to straighten them out. Divine wisdom tells us why things are bent. They are bent because of sin. This is the result of living in a fallen creation. This is just what this world is. Yes, there is poverty. Yes, there are inequalities. Yes, there are people that are crippled. Yes, there are people that get diseases. There are people who die. There are people who are poor their whole lives. There are people who are born with silver spoons in their mouth. Yes, all of these things are true. But you can take all of the wisest philosophers, all of the best of human intellects in the world, you can put them in a think tank, in an ivory tower, and they will never come up with a solution to it. They can't. And listen, when the force of government is applied to try and solve the things that are bent and to try to straighten the things that are bent, people die. That's what happens. You can't straighten out what's bent. And you can't apply the force of human government to try and straighten those things out. And if the history of the world tells us anything, not only do people die, millions of people die in an attempt to straighten those things out. You can't do it. Divine wisdom helps us to live in a world that is bent. Divine wisdom tells us it is bent because of sin, it is broken because of sin, that in Adam all of us died, all of us fell, all of us were ruined, and all of us were hopeless. Divine wisdom then helps me to understand what it means to live in a bent world 
in light of the truth of God's word and in a way that honors God. The solution to human bentness and human brokenness is not human wisdom, human rationality, and human reason. It is a divine Savior. That's what we need. We need a divine Savior. And this is what Christ did. He stepped into this broken and bent world. And he did not try to straighten out the things that were bent or use his power or his force to do that. He came into this world to redeem sinners, the people for himself, for his own name, for his own glory. And there is coming a time when he will come back and he will straighten out what is bent. He will right every wrong. He will correct every injustice. He will solve every mystery and inequity. He will deal with those things. But that's not in this world, not in this time. That's not our job. He will come back and he will do that. But in the meantime, he has paid the price for our sin on the cross so that we may escape the bentness and the brokenness. Not that we are, not that the gospel promises that when we embrace Christ, all of a sudden everything's straightened out and made wonderful in our lives. That's not what the gospel offers. But the gospel does offer us forgiveness for our sins and a righteousness that we need to stand before God and before Jesus Christ on the final day. That is what the gospel provides. That is the answer to our bentness in this world. The other things we cannot solve, but our own bentness we can and our own crookedness we can solve or we is solved, I should say better yet, is solved through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And when we repent of our sin and trust Christ for salvation, his death on the cross becomes our death on the cross. His resurrection is our resurrection and his righteousness is our righteousness. God has provided a way of escape from the wrath of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death on the cross so that you might be free and you might be forgiven and you might escape the wrath of God on that day. And he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so the command goes out to repent, and if you will not repent, then you will face the wrath of God. Those are, those are your two choices. So we're going to observe communion here in a moment, and as Christians we understand what God has done to deliver us from his wrath that is in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give him praise for that. We thank him for that. We remember his death on the cross, his brutal crucifixion, the shedding of his blood to atone for us. If you are an unbeliever, please don't partake of communion. Just let the cup pass. It's not for you. It is for those who have embraced Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, and been born again by the gift of God's grace from above. And as Christians, we repent of our sins and we acknowledge our transgressions before the Lord before we partake so that we do not partake in an unworthy manner. So we'll take a couple of moments to pray quietly, and then I will lead us in prayer and we'll partake of communion together. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.